Welcome to Ufahamu Africa. I'm Kimmy Dion, your host. In this episode, we wanted to draw attention to the ongoing conflict in Ethiopia, which some are calling a genocide against Tigrayan people. Earlier this week, I spoke with Dr. Goyatum Gebreluel, the managing director of Hateta Policy Research, which conducts analysis and provides advisory services on political economy, security policy, and regional affairs in the Horn of Africa and Red Sea regions. Goyatum earned his PhD in political science from the University of Cambridge and previously taught at the University of London and the University of Mikkel. His publications and commentaries on security, political economy, foreign policy, Ethiopia, and the Horn of Africa have appeared in Foreign Affairs, the Washington Post, and the Washington Quarterly. I asked him this week to describe and contextualize the conflict in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. And I want to let our listeners know that my conversation with Goyatim includes discussion of sexual violence and may not be suitable for all audiences. Rachel and I are skipping our news wrap this week, but on ufamuafrica.com, we'll include links to things we read and found interesting this week, including the latest Afrobarometer Monkey Cage collaboration by Joe Asunka and Carolyn Logan connecting citizens' access to government budgets and their perceptions of corruption. An essay in The Economist saying Somaliland deserves international recognition, and a Human Rights Watch report on how Sudan's armed forces are using excessive lethal force against peaceful protesters gathering in Khartoum to commemorate victims of the 2019 crackdown. As we near the end of Season 5, we want to invite our listeners to share their good news with us so that we can share it in our season closer. For example, we just learned that our friend and colleague and guest in Episode 102, Noah Nathan, earned tenure. Congratulations, Noah. So reach out to us via Twitter or send us an email at ufahamuafrica at gmail.com and tell us your good news so we can share it with our listeners. Now let's go to my conversation with Goyatum. Hi, my name is Goyatum Gabrielou. I'm a researcher on Ethiopian and Horn of Africa politics. Thank you for joining us this week to get our listeners a better understanding of what's happening in Tigray, the northernmost region of Ethiopia, which sits on the border with Eritrea. Now, to give our listeners some context, what analysts are now calling a civil war began in Tigray in late 2020 when Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed sent federal troops into the region for a military operation against the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. Um, the Northern Region's ruling party. Now, the TPLF was prominent in national politics for decades as a powerful party in the ruling coalition, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF. Though its position of prominence has declined since 2012, the year when former TPLF leader and Ethiopian Prime Minister Mela Zenawi died in office. For the last few months across Ethiopia, ethnic Tigrayans have been harassed, arrested and suspended from their jobs. Thousands of people are reported to have been killed in the conflict, nearly 2 million people have been displaced, and more than 5 million people will be in need of food assistance because of the conflict's impact on food supply and distribution. It is rare, but there are even a few articles in the international media referencing genocide in reporting on Tigray, documenting stories of ethnically motivated violence, including sexual violence. So, Gabrielle, what I what I would like to know is what beyond this summary do you think our listeners should know about what's happening in Tigray right now? What have I, or you know, even what have I said that you think needs correction or more explanation? Um, thank you. So, I would just add a couple of more uh, points. Uh, first of all, I would say um, at this point, 
Um, I think the evidence um, for the fact that what's going on is a genocide is is uh, very um, convincing. Um, I would cite a couple of uh, you know patterns in the violence that indicates this. Uh, the first is um, the extent of and nature of the sexual violence. So um, rape has been uh, systematically uh, employed as a weapon of war in this in this. Uh, in this conflict. And what we're seeing is that the intent seemed to be to destroy the reproductive capacity of women. We say this, uh, first of all, because of the uh, testimonies that are that have been uh, gathered from uh, the victims. They say that the soldiers that rape them tell them that uh, their intention is to prevent them from uh, giving birth to Tigrayans in the future. Um, the nature of the rape also, the violence that is committed after the rape, uh, also indicates that the intention is to um, physically and mentally uh, destroy uh, the woman that they're raping. This seems to be a, a clear systematic way of, of uh, destroying the reproductive capacity of, uh, of the society. Um, the other indicator um, that leads us to say that this is a genocide is the use of uh, starvation as a weapon of war. So um, throughout the last uh, six months, the soldiers have systematically been destroying uh, the seeds uh, and agricultural equipment of uh, farmers. They've been preventing farmers from uh, farming and they're preventing aid agencies to reach uh, the civilian population. And this um, has you know the, the the testimonies we have of this is not simply from uh, uh, Tigrayans, but it's also from uh, aid agencies, international uh, aid agencies that are operating in Tigray. So uh, when when you put these um, facts, uh, uh, these patterns together, um, it seems to be the case that uh, the intention is to exterminate uh, parts or the entire uh, population of Tigray for political reasons. The other thing I would point out, which I think uh, is often overlooked in the media, is um, the politics behind this genocide. Um, it's often presented as, you know, some sort of apolitical event, some sort of uh, yes, you know, violence without uh, a clear political logic. Um, when you read analysis uh, of this uh, in the media, in the international media. Um, but what you have to do is you have to look at it uh, in, a, in a broader historical context. Uh, when you do that, you see that um, this type of violence is recurrent in Ethiopia. This is not the first time that genocide is taking place in Ethiopia. Um, in fact, this seems to be some sort of pathological characteristic to this violence. Um, ever since the state of Ethiopia was uh, established in the 19th century, uh, mass atrocities against civilians have been uh, regularly occurring uh, events. Uh, throughout history. So you have two types of periods here. Um, one is the period before the age of nationalism, where um, that part of East Africa um, was led by uh, different empires, and the biggest one of them being the Abyssinian Empire. Um, in that period, in the 19th century and uh, early 20th century, you have mass atrocities being committed against civilians as a way of punishing uh, rebellions or as a way of subjugating people. And 
that usually involved uh, cutting off uh, breasts of women, hands of uh, of the men, cutting off legs, and these types of uh, uh, actions. But it didn't stop there. So in the 20th century, during the communist regime, um, in the 70s and 80s, the communist regime also used starvation as a weapon of war against uh, uh, Eritreans and Tigrayans in particular. And it led to a man-made famine in which one million people died. Fast forward today, and um, you see the same type of violence and the same type of tactics uh, being used by Abiy Ahmed in um, Tigray, um, where, you know, in addition to starvation, you now also have uh, uh, extensive forms of uh, sexual uh, violence and even, you know, the systematic destruction of cultural heritage, um, which indicates that uh, ethnicity and and politics is, is, a, is a big driver, not just military um, strategy, essentially. So you bring up Abiy Ahmed. So um, now Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize winner. And, um, and that award promised, gave some vision of the potential to bring peace, justice, and prosperity to all Ethiopians. And there was optimism that he would bring an end to long-standing tensions and unify the nation. Many saw, for example, his cooling of the tensions with neighboring Eritrea as a sign of real change in Ethiopia. But events since his Nobel Award, including the ongoing civil war in Tigray, have quelled that early optimism. Using Eritrean relations as an example, many of the atrocities that have been committed in Tigray during the civil war have been committed by Eritrean soldiers. For months, Prime Minister Abi and the Eritrean government denied that Eritrean troops had even entered Tigray, though both governments publicly committed to the withdrawal of Eritrean troops after finally admitting um, there's no proof that that withdrawal is happening. Now, in a recent article that you wrote with Mulubayene in African Arguments, you argue that, quote, any probe into war crimes that involves the African Union or the government's own Human Rights Commission stands little chance of being effective. Now, why did you and Mulu argue that a UN-led investigation was needed? And, and what would it mean to involve external actors for the long-term peace efforts in the region? So we um, opposed the involvement of the AU and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission uh, based on their partisan history uh, in this uh, conflict. So initially uh, in the war, um, the African Union uh, Commission uh, Chair, uh, Musa Faki, embraced the war uh, very overtly, justifying it, saying that this was within the uh, sovereign rights of Ethiopia to you know, uh, crush the uh, rebellion uh, in the north, as he called it. Um, and this, I think, uh, was problematic uh, for many reasons. Uh, first of all, this was not um, a domestic affair. The involvement of Eritrea makes it an international conflict. Secondly, um, the mass atrocities uh, being committed also means that one cannot uh, hide this under you know, uh, the concept of, of sovereignty. Um, and the African Union, I think, was uh, the actor that uh, had the biggest moral responsibility and was the closest and could potentially have been the most effective in um, uh, stopping the conflict early on, um, early on in November. But instead, uh, Musafaki um, embraced the war and, and encouraged Abiy Ahmed to uh, 
continue um, with his uh, conflict. Now, this, I don't think African Union would have done this with any other country in Africa. Um, uh, African Union has a long history of um, treating Ethiopia differently. Uh, it doesn't, I cannot recall a moment uh, throughout its existence where it actually confronted Ethiopia on its human rights uh, and democratic deficiencies. And many people attribute this to um, the fact that the African Union's headquarters is in, uh, is in Addis Ababa. And that, yes, and that gives uh, them uh, uh, leverage that other African countries do not have. Um, so based on this history, we thought it, we, it would be uh, very unreasonable um, to involve uh, an actor that has uh, so... Uh, vocally embraced uh, one side in the conflict uh, to be involved in the in the investigation, and the same uh, problem with the uh, the same problem applies to the Ethiopian Human Rights uh, Commission. Um, the commissioner um, Daniel Bekele um, has, since he's been appointed by uh, Abiy Ahmed uh, as as uh, as commissioner, has uh, displayed a very um, selective and almost curated reporting pattern when it comes to um, human rights violations in Ethiopia. Um, some of the patterns that we see are um, that the Human Rights Commission is very quick to investigate cases that the government can use um, for propaganda purposes. So there was a, a massacre in um, a place called Maikadra in Tigray uh, a few weeks into the war. And it took the Human Rights Commission just a couple of days to send a, a team uh, to investigate that uh, massacre. And within two weeks, they concluded that um, the perpetrators were from the Tigrayan side. And the government used this as a, um, as, a, as a propaganda tool to mobilize people for the war. On the other hand, there was um, a major massacre in Aksum that has now been fairly well covered by uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and so forth, um, in which hundreds of uh, people were massacred um, uh, for several days by Eritrean and Ethiopian troops. Um, um, I think it was uh, late November. Now, this was, you know, a lot of people were talking about this. There were a great deal of evidence that this had happened uh, early on, but this was ignored by uh, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission until Amnesty International made a report about this in, in February, in which case, you know, after that happened, they, they immediately said that they would investigate. And this is, uh, you know, the, the pattern in which um, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission has been uh, curating the reports that it, may, it, it produces in order to cover up or, or benefit uh, the governments. So we're now talking in May, which is three months after these um, reports of what happened in action have been public. And, and has the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission written any, issued any report? Nothing uh, substantial. Um, so, you know, the moment they cannot hide uh, the atrocities anymore, um, they sort of halfway recognize <laughs> Um, these uh, that these atrocities have, have have taken place, and they say that they're going to look into it. So, for example, my cadre, which they uh, you know concluded uh, were committed by Tigrayans exclusively in uh, in November, 
now they tell us that um, they've also come across evidence that suggests that the government was also uh, involved or that the um, Amhara uh, militias were involved. Uh, and this is you know six, seven months later, and um, apparently they've been sitting on this information but not uh, reported it. So it's a very... Um, I have to say it's a very sophisticated PR machinery that they're running um, because they managed to produce just enough to be seen as somewhat credible uh, human rights organization uh, internationally, but they produce um, or, they, or they, they, they manage to sort of conceal as much as possible uh, of the government's atrocities uh, for as long right. as possible. And, um, and people aren't paying attention to it anymore. Right. Yeah, and, and, and that's a much more effective way of, of covering up atrocities than simply denying them from the outset or just, you know. Right. Uh, to say, well, there needs to be more investigation. And, and Yeah. So, so because of this, they've now also actually had uh, been given the opportunity to conduct investigations together with the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Commission because they've, been man- they've, they've managed to create this image of a somewhat responsible uh, human rights organization. So, Now, simultaneous with the violence that's ongoing in Tigray, Ethiopia is also facing armed uprisings in its western region, where the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is located, the GERD. Um, the dam is a development project that could potentially solve Ethiopia's electricity shortfall, um, but it is also expected to affect water supply to the countries and people further down the Nile River, specifically Egypt and Sudan. Now, progress on the dam has thus elevated tensions with these two countries. In your doctoral thesis, you examined Ethiopia's strategies for managing regional conflicts, focusing on Ethiopia's rivalries with Sudan, Eritrea, and Somalia between 1991 and 2018. Now, in light of your research, how would you put the civil war in Tigray and the foreign policy challenges associated with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in a broader historical context? What are some continuities and changes in Ethiopia's foreign policy? Uh, Yes, I think to answer that question, we need to go back to what sort of national strategy Ethiopia was employing um, prior to the coming of this government. The previous Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, uh, EPRDF, pursued a developmental state uh, national strategy from 2002-2018. That uh, strategy um, was a reflection of the domestic developmental state uh, economic model that they were pursuing. And um, the priorities of that strategy uh, or, or its uh, premise was the, the understanding that Ethiopia was a poor and fragile state that needed to uh, prioritize economic development and international internal stability. So um, Based on this premise, um, they concluded that they needed to manage their regional rivalries um, through diplomatic means or by establishing diplomatic ties uh, extensively in the region and avoid military confrontation because of uh, its impact for internal stability, which would again have an impact on uh, economic development. So this led to isolating Eritrea instead of. Uh, fighting a second war. Um, And in relation to Egypt and the Nile, um, this led to about uh, 
five, 10 years of diplomatic work to bring uh, or to strengthen their uh, alliance with Sudan and persuade Sudan to support Ethiopia's stance um, on the Nile. And uh, once they've had built that uh, you know, diplomatic network in the region, and particularly with Sudan, there was very little Egypt could do to stop Ethiopia from uh, pursuing its uh, goal on the Nile. Now, Abiy Ahmed changed that uh, significantly. Uh, once he came to power, he reverted back to Ethiopia's traditional way of looking at foreign policy and national security. Like so many uh, leaders before him, he simply took it for granted that Ethiopia was this uh, big state that deserved recognition and diplomatic capital was not, in his view, something that had to be cultivated and maintained um, regularly. He simply took it for granted that this was something that could be exercised. So he uh, gave up a lot of those or he uh, neglected many of those regional ties that the EPRDF had built. And the crucial one he neglected was Sudan. Sudan was key for everything. So um, instead, he found uh, or he made a, an alliance with Isaiah Fork and Eritrea and Mohamed um, uh, Abdullah Farmajo of uh, Somalia and sort of excluded the other states in the region. And when that happened, then Sudan had no incentive to side with Ethiopia anymore. So they increasingly became closer to Egypt. And there was this uh, area called Al-Fashaga in Sudan, which had been occupied by um, Ethiopian farmers for many decades. Due to the good relations that Ethiopia had with Sudan under the EPRDF, um, they'd come to an agreement that the farmers could remain there, but Ethiopia would recognize uh, Sudan's sovereignty of that territory. Now, Abiy Ahmed, when he came to power, he had this, uh, as I said, conception of Ethiopia as this regional hegemon that could do whatever it wanted. Um, when the war in Tigray began, uh, I think Sudan moved its troops into that area. And Abiy Ahmed became furious because he said that that was Ethiopian territory. That's still the um, uh, claim of the government. And then, of course, relations with Sudan totally collapsed. And Sudan, in fact, began laying new claims, new territorial claims that we haven't heard of before on Ethiopia. So, um, yeah, what you see is this move away from that developmental state uh, strategy of restraint and focusing on internal stability and managing rivals through diplomacy to one of uh, hubris and um, status-seeking, uh, militarism. And of course, the problem is that Ethiopia does not have the material um, basis uh, to exercise that type of hegemony that uh, Abiy Ahmed and the Ethiopian elite imagine that, uh, that they have. So uh, we see that uh, uh, in, the, in the conflict with Sudan, it doesn't have the capacity actually to resist Sudan or to uh, push them uh, out of that territory. And um, this has also incentivized Egypt and Sudan to be more, much more confrontational uh, on the Nile question. So I think uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> that does not, it does not, um, it does not strike me as someone who wins a Nobel Peace Prize would, would, um, would act in such a way. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Now here in the United States, where I'm based, 
There have been a number of demonstrations in solidarity with the people of Tigray, for example, in Boston, Seattle, Las Vegas, and Washington, D.C. I should note also that um, there are Ethiopians in the diaspora here in the U.S. and in Canada that are protesting in support of the Ethiopian government as well. Um, Now, the political situation in Ethiopia and its deadly consequences for civilians raised concern throughout the Ethiopian diaspora and in the broader international community. Um, I'm curious to hear what you think are potential routes that people, including our listeners, um, who want to advocate from afar um, in in ending the violence and the genocide against Tigrayan people? I think the most effective way is uh, contacting, um, particularly uh, uh, Americans in America, have a, a very important uh, role to play here. Um, contacting local uh, or their Congress and and and. Uh, representatives and, and, and senators uh, is a great help. Um, those that have special influence, if they can make that public, um, is also immensely important, uh, an immensely important uh, contribution. Um, uh, anyone else, I think, you know, as much as you can, if you can uh, draw attention to this on, on social media and, uh, uh, and in any other way you can, uh, uh, that's uh, these are great contributions, I think. But the most important is actually uh, talk to local uh, representatives. And I know that you've been very active on Twitter, sharing information about what's happening. Are there particular hashtags on Twitter that you think our listeners should be following? Yeah, the main one is uh, Tigray genocide. That's the one uh, everyone is using. And um, if you follow that, and if you follow. Uh, some advocacy groups like uh, Tighat, that's T-G-H-A-T, and uh, Omna. You will uh, keep yourself updated on, uh, on the latest on that front. Great. Thank you so much for your time this week and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ufahamu Africa. To find any of the articles, books, or links we talked about, head to ufahamuafrica.com. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like what you're hearing on Ufahamu Africa, please share this episode and review our show on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is produced by Megan DeMint with help from research and production assistant Fulia Felicity Turkman. We are generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and receive research assistance from Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Our music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. 